Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode of the Irish History Podcast is brought to you by irishnewspaperarchives.com, the gateway to Ireland's great historical past. irishnewspaperarchives.com has the archives of over 70 Irish newspapers, with new titles being added all the time. While the earliest papers begin in the 1730s, it continues right into 2019. So whether you're looking for recent events that happened in your lifetime or something in the distant past, it's an incredible resource. As a listener to the Irish History Podcast, they're offering you 30% off monthly and yearly packages. So for just €20, you get access for a month to over 70 newspapers, which is a pretty incredible offer when you consider what one newspaper costs today. You can avail of this anywhere in the world, so just go to irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code HISTORY30. That coupon code has changed, so it's HISTORY30 and the address is irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and that code is HISTORY30. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Last of Her Kind, The Life of Pegsares, Part 2. Today we continue our journey back to an Ireland that is now long gone by following the life of Pegsares. In the first episode on her life we saw the unique world she grew up in, in what was then a very remote place, the Dingle Peninsula. Today we continue our journey as we follow Peg to the great Blasket Island. Life there although separated by just three miles of water, was very different in many respects, not least because the island still had a king when Peg went there. We also look at how major events shaped this community, from the 1916 Rising to the War of Independence, then concluding with how and why the island had to be permanently evacuated. To begin though, I want to pick up where the last show ended, with Peg's marriage, which many of you will find pretty jaw-dropping, given what was involved. The accounts from Peg are read by Niamh Nireen, Sean Sheehy narrates Robin Flower's piece, and Eileen Nihulawan's words are read by Kyriuk. I would like to also thank Leslie Kyo for her help. Before we kick off, I want to thank everyone who signed up on Patreon since the last show came out. We're getting close to the target of hiring a researcher, and I'm really excited by the prospect of this. 
As a way of giving back to show patrons, as I said in the last episode, I was starting an exclusive patrons-only book service, which I'll be giving show patrons some of the books I use for research but don't need any longer. I'm giving away two lovely texts associated with this episode. They're translations of Peg Sayre's stories. One actually comes with CDs of her original recordings in Irish as well. If you want to sign up and help me reach the target and get all the bonus features available to show patrons, it's really easy at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Peg Sayers was married at the age of 19 in 1892 in an event that changed her life in every way imaginable. Today marriage tends to have a limited impact on relationships as couples will have already been living together for years and may have already started a family before the marriage itself. In the 19th century however it changed a person's life or at least it changed a woman's life in fundamental ways. Think of it something like this. So imagine going on a first date of sorts with someone however during this date You're never really alone with them and you don't really get a chance to talk to them very much so you don't know very much about this other person. Then, within a week, you get married and if this wasn't enough, you move into his parents' house which is just a two-roomed cottage. I should say all this is also irreversible. So if your husband turned out to be abusive or perhaps you didn't get along or perhaps there was just no attraction, this is all besides the point. You are now married until the day one of you dies. This is essentially what happened to Peg Sayers and countless women like her in the 19th century. Surprisingly though, given how important and transformative marriage was, the celebrations were pretty low-key. There was no honeymoon, not least because people couldn't afford one. But the actual celebration itself, as I say, was low-key. There was no hotel. Instead, the friends and family would gather in the woman's house after the ceremony for what was called the wedding feast. However, in the case of Peg Sayers, even this was denied to her. Indeed, the wedding day was overshadowed by a tragedy. When the wedding party returned to her house, they discovered her niece had fallen seriously ill and she would go on to die later that night. So Peg's wedding feast actually became a wake for her niece. Now, a few days later, the greatest change resulting from her wedding took place. And this saw Peg set out for her new home on the Great Blasket Island with her husband, While the Great Blasket was only three miles away from Dunquin, the islanders were considered odd and strange by people on the mainland and this is something which surely must have just added to Peg's anxiety about what lay ahead for her. There's no doubt that life on the island was going to be very different from what it had been in Dunquin and this is something that would have been immediately obvious to Peg when she arrived on the Great Blasket. While community was intensely important in Dunquin, it was literally a matter of life and death on the Great Blasket. The census of 1891 counted the island community to be just 132 people. Many of these were children, so the islanders had to work together to survive. This created a collective approach to life, which was obvious from the moment Peg stepped ashore. Her wedding back in Dunquin had been overshadowed by the death of her niece, But the welcome and the marriage celebration which greeted her were far more than anything she expected. As the Curragh carrying her, that's a small canoe, pulled ashore through the surf on the shoreline, the entire island community had gathered 
to greet and welcome Peg. This began what was a prolonged celebration that lasted well into the night. Peg herself was totally overwhelmed by this and this is just the first sign that the community she was entering was different to her old life back home. Things on the island were done in different ways as I mentioned influenced by an even more collective attitude to life than had existed in Dunquin. Now while the islanders were naturally happy to celebrate the fact that one of their own, Pat's Flint O'Gohin, was married, it was also a significant moment for the entire island community. Peg's arrival and marriage was not just important for the O'Gohin family, but it helped secure the future of the island itself. Indeed, her marriage to Pat's Flint would in time add 5% to the island population. In this context, you can see how the arrival of Peg was a significant moment for the islanders, who could take nothing for granted. Indeed, only two years previously, they had suffered a major typhus epidemic. On that occasion, there had been no loss of life, but it underscored the potential risks they faced. Their differing and more collective approach to life was perhaps best embodied, though, by one of the oldest islanders at the time, the 90-year-old Padraig Vartin O'Cahan. O'Cahan was what was known as the King of the Great Blasket Island in the 1890s. Now the position of King of the Great Blasket was no tourist gimmick or ceremonial title, but instead was a very important figure who facilitated close working relationships between the islanders. Peg would never have encountered such a figure back on the mainland, and the origins of the King of the Great Blasket were rooted in very old Irish traditions stretching back into the Middle Ages. This king was very different from the institution of monarchy as it existed in the rest of Europe. Indeed, beyond the name king, there are very few similarities. So the king was a leader of the island community, but he did not emerge through physical force or did he inherit the title by birthright. Indeed, exactly how someone became king is not entirely clear, but it was very much a process rather than any single event such as a coronation. Robin Flower, the Englishman who arguably knew the islanders better than any outsider, described the king as the chief man of authority in the village who hold his office of sheer weight of character. The islander Tomaso Hrihan concurred with this and said the king slowly came into being, emerging as the most charismatic individual on the island. There was no ceremony conferring the title, but over time this individual proved himself honest and worthy of the respect of his community and slowly became known as the king. The old king who Peg would have met when she first arrived on the island died around the turn of the 20th century. However, by 1905, a new king, his grandson, a man called Padraig O'Cahan, had emerged as king, but it was not a hereditary role. Padraig O'Cahan had just proved to be the best suited islander for the role. His duties were manifold. He was an advisor, an ambassador to formally welcome guests. He was also a postman, which in many ways made him the point of contact with the outside world. This role involved great trust. For example, Robin Flower on occasion did lectures on the Great Blasket in Dublin and he always sent the proceeds of these to the island to be dispersed among the islanders. The division of this money fell to Portugal Cahan, the king. Perhaps most importantly though, he was the man who had to mediate disputes between the islanders and this was an essential part of island life. Now Peg herself never commented very much on the role of the king, save to say she held him in great respect. However, other aspects of Peg's commentary on island life was perhaps evidence of the king working behind the scenes. As we'll hear later on, Peg commented on how the island was internally harmonious and how she very rarely saw arguments. 
Now there's no reason to disbelieve her, but this unity and harmony was something that the islanders had to work on. They were by no means a perfect people, and disputes arose, but many sources refer to the king's ability to resolve them. This meant he had to be a figure that emerged with the approval of the entire community so they would trust his judgement. This internal cohesion that the king helped to foster on the island was extremely important though because, as we will see, island life was remarkably difficult. They could not fight amongst themselves and battle the forces nature threw at them at the same time. Similar to life back in Dunquin, the Great Famine overshadowed the Great Blaskers in the later 19th century. There's a common misconception that island communities were untouched by the Great Hunger, and while some islands did suffer less, it was by no means a universal experience. Islanders were often the poorest and therefore the most vulnerable communities and were often devastated. The Great Blasket, for example, lost one third of its population in the 1840s. However, by the time Peg arrived, it was growing again and recovering from the loss, whereas many mainland communities were still struggling. While Peg's account of the Great Blasket is most famous because she documented the difficulty of life there, chronicling how it simply became too hard to survive, her early memories of the island are different. In the 1890s when she arrived, she found a community that seemed to have a long future ahead of it, as this account indicates. I remember well the first year I was married and went to live on the Great Blasket. The 15 cradles were being rocked on the island then. There was a schoolhouse that was full up of children, up to 60 pupils. There were over 60 houses. People were polite, well-mannered, sociable, cheerful and charitable to each other. I didn't see two women fighting or scolding in the 50 years I was there. While this is an exaggeration, the 1890 census revealed there were only 21 houses on the Great Blasket, one of which was uninhabited. Her point remains... The fact that the population was growing was a crude indicator of economic success and in the 1890s the islanders were pretty self-sufficient and actually probably enjoyed more comforts than Peg was used to back in Dunquin. Her reference to food for example in Dunquin was generally just potatoes whereas on the island she talked about having fish and meat. In winter the islanders were able to hunt for rabbits the meat of which was eaten and the pelts were sold. In the 1890s the islanders also even ground their own flour to make bread. Peg gave this account of how they used to grind oatmeal into flour. And one stone would be placed on top of another with a handle, a wooden handle. There was a hole through the top stone and the grain would be continuously fed down. What she is describing here is a quern stone. Technology that's thousands of years old, but it was suited to the small scale demands of island life. Now aside from food, the islanders also made their own clothes as Peg recalled. No child or adult on the island wore a stitch of clothing from a shop. Nothing but the clothes that they made themselves. This was the island life that outsiders were often intrigued by and fell in love with, but few were there to see the island when it was battered by winter storms. This would have been enough to dismiss any notions that the Great Blasket was a self-sustaining utopia. Winters were particularly tough. Peg was very honest about this. It say until and more and bowless deshed the will of fall and tower och frere here is say and bowless massa conconi. In summer, the Great Blasket is the most beautiful place on earth, but in winter, unfortunately, it is the worst place in the world. I spent 50 years of my life there. It was there I raised all my children. It was wonderful and it was horrible as the old story has it. Every joy was followed by a sorrow. 
Perhaps it was the sea that surrounded the island though that inflicted the greatest of hardships. The island was exposed to the Atlantic Ocean and a bad storm for example could destroy the crops they grew. For the fishermen on the island though it posed even greater risks. When John Millington Singh, the famous Irish playwright, visited in 1905 he noted that an islander had not been lost at sea in living memory. However this was a little consolation to Peg who spent long sleepless nights worrying about her husband and then later her children when they were out fishing in heavy seas. While no fisherman may have been lost at sea, Peg's husband lost his health relatively young in life because of the hardships of a life at sea and he would spend his final years bedridden. The isolation imposed by the sea also had a dramatic impact on the islanders' spirituality because they had no access to a priest most of the time, something that was unnerving as death approached. This was never more apparent than when Peg had her first child and she decided to return to her parents' house on the mainland to give birth. The words of her mother-in-law about... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. This decision are very telling. The Marude or Shisha Gomech Gala Sagar Tanula Doctor by Mboher Tira Mound Kondolar Nira. If you need a priest or a doctor, there will be a dry road to travel. Indeed, my girl, we have little means to back us here. The only reason Peg would need a priest was if her life or the life of her baby were at risk. This was a very real threat. While she and her child were in good health on this occasion, over the course of her life, Peg gave birth to nine children, of which only five survived childhood. 
Three died in infancy, while a fourth, Siobhan, died at the age of eight from measles. All through her life, the dangerous reality of island life was a constant, but it was most clearly illustrated in what is the best-known tragedy of Peg Sayre's life. That is the death of her 17-year-old son, Tomas. One afternoon, he was out collecting brushwood for a fire, and while at the top of a cliff on the island, he lost his footing. He fell and was killed when his body was dashed against the rocks beneath. Now while much of the podcast so far has focused on the isolation of life on the island, it's important to notice this was in many ways a one-way process. While the islanders were separated from the mainland, this did not stop the political, social and economic changes that were beginning to sweep across Ireland and Europe in the early 20th century affecting them. But before we look at that, we'll take a quick break. It's nearly two years since IrishNewspaperArchives.com began sponsoring the show. The reason they have been the sponsor for this length of time is because listeners like you find the archive an amazing resource. I use it all the time myself. It covers such a range of topics. Basically every major event in Irish history since the 1750s is in that archive and all from the perspective of people who lived through these incredible times. You can get access to this great resource with a 30% discount as a listener to the Irish History Podcast. You can avail of this discount of 30% by going to irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and use the code HISTORY30. That code has changed from previous episodes. It's now HISTORY30. So don't miss out and go to irishnewspaperarchives.com and use the code HISTORY30. In the summer of 1914, when the Englishman Robin Flower was staying on the Great Blasket, the king of the island, Padraig O'Conn, approached him with the news, they have killed an archduke in the eastern world. Now there's poetry in these words, but what the king is actually describing here was a major world event. This was a reference to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, whose assassination in Sarajevo in June 1914 triggered the crisis that would eventually lead to the outbreak of World War I. The words of the king indicate a distance and a remove from these events, but it should not be mistaken for complete ignorance. It's worth bearing in mind firstly that these are all translated from their original Irish, but they also reflect a different relationship that the islanders had to the wider world. Robin Flower commented on how the islanders, in their mind's eye at least, had a strong connection to the USA from emigration and tended to look there rather than to London. So in this context, Sarajevo was probably far more remote than it would have been for people, say, in Dublin. While it may have seemed very distant, the islanders were not ignorant as to what the assassination of the Archduke could potentially mean, and they kept abreast of developments in the following weeks. The king brought out newspapers to the island, and they debated back and forth what the unfolding crisis would mean. When the First World War eventually broke out in August 1914, the islanders' allegiances were actually quite interestingly divided. While some wanted the British Empire to win, many islanders who were by and large Irish nationalists and republicans in their outlook supported the German Empire of Kaiser Wilhelm II. On an aside, it makes you wonder how the Englishman Robin Flower, who was on the island at the time that summer, navigated these conversations. Flower did provide some insights into how the war began to impact the island. He recalled mines being laid around the Kerry coast while the debris of ships sunk out in the Atlantic washed ashore on the beaches. 
However, the war had a much more fundamental impact on island life as well. The islander Tomás O'Crihan, who wrote a famous book on Tilónoch, or The Islander, wrote to Robin Flower during the war, talking about how the conflict had brought a halt to English ships coming to the Great Blasket, and they used to buy the lobsters from local fishermen. This, accompanied by high prices and the impact of international trade, saw flour increase in price and the disappearance of sugar completely as well, making life that bit more difficult. Now, the worst excesses of this, however, were offset when a ship, the Quebra, ran aground near the island in 1916. While much of the contents of the ship were damaged by seawater, the islanders salvaged large quantities of sugar, bacon and flour. In a glimpse of Peg's humour, she said that the American bacon on the Quebra made the islanders frisky. That year of 1916 was famous for other events in Irish history, not least among them the Easter Rising that took place in late April. While the islanders were ardent supporters of Irish independence, Peg's recollection of the Rising certainly gives us a sense of just how far removed they were from Dublin. Long years after my coming to the island, there was clamour and confusion that there was a destroying battle between Irish and strangers in Dublin. At first, you wouldn't believe a word of it. A big story, a wonderful story it was. Dublin City was one big, huge fire and the big guns of the stranger battering it and the fragrant blood of the Irish being spilled. They say total destruction is done already there. They say the girls of the city were fighting shoulder to shoulder with the lads. The islanders were clearly at a distance from these events, although the word stranger has often been misinterpreted as ignorance as to who was actually fighting in Dublin. The islanders were fully aware of the forces at play during the 1916 Rising. The word stranger is just a direct translation of the Irish word for an English person. It was in 1916 that the island population reached its peak when it was recorded at 176 people. But unbeknownst to the islanders, a major crisis was already unfolding one that would eventually see the island evacuated. While relative peace returned to most of Europe with the end of World War I in 1918, the outbreak of the Irish War of Independence in 1919 led to continued uncertainty in Ireland and on the Great Blasket. While the islanders were again by and large far removed from the major conflict zones during the War of Independence, the Black and Tans, a notorious paramilitary organisation created by Winston Churchill, raided the island, including Pegg's house. Pegg's memories of this, perhaps, are among the most revealing as to her political views and the views of the islanders. The raid took place in 1920 and her household had pictures of the 1916 leaders and Thomas Ashe, a Republican leader who had died on hunger strike in 1917. As the Black and Tans approached her house, her husband, Pat's Flint, told Peg to take down the pictures, but she refused, saying they had sacrificed themselves for Ireland and she wouldn't hide the pictures from anyone. The Black and Tans entered the house and Peg later mused at the funny scene where neither could understand each other, although presumably the islanders were pretending their English was a lot poorer than it actually was. While the islanders often seemed at the periphery of these major events, as I mentioned earlier, they were heavily impacted by the economic changes resulting from these conflicts, which we'll look at next. The end of the First World War saw countries across the world impose tariffs on imports. In particular, 
a US tariff on salted mackerel affected life on the Blasket Islands as the price islanders could get for their fish began to fall. Furthermore, the islanders began to face competition from large fishing trawlers from England and the continent. This hit the island economically, triggering a much wider crisis. Now, emigration had always been a feature of life on the island, acting as a pressure valve for those who couldn't find work at home. But in the 1920s, it became a much more serious issue when it reached very problematic levels. By 1926, the island population had fallen to 143 people from its height of 176 just 10 years earlier. However, this was far more serious than just a fall in numbers. The crisis was more to do with the age profile of those leaving. In the 1920s, it was all younger islanders who were emigrating, meaning the Great Blasket was increasingly inhabited by an ageing population. This broke an essential link in the bonds of solidarity, interdependence and communal life that had not only been central, but essential to island life. Indeed, Peg herself watched her family ebb away before her eyes. The accidental death of her son Tomas in 1920 triggered what probably was an inevitable process. Within a few months of Tomas's death, her oldest son Podrick emigrated. He earned money and sent for his sister Coyth, and then only five months after her departure, Pat's Flint, her husband, who had been an invalid for a long period of time, died. Over the coming three years, her remaining children all emigrated to the USA. This left Peg living alone with her brother-in-law, with a very limited ability to bring in an income on an island increasingly facing difficulties. She summarised the situation they faced as follows. The Hosni Nadina Oga er imacht, the Hosni an Seo Kundol Kunanisha, Dordi an Luch and a Harry Bugger er who Augusta Hep on Tiska Kurhu. The young began to leave, times got bad, the price of every little thing rose and the fishing failed. Although island life would survive for decades, by the mid 1920s it had crossed the threshold. Peg herself was very aware that hers was the last generation who would ever live on the Great Blasket. And she was not alone in this sentiment. Another islander, Eileen Hulawan, would write to a friend in England in August 1940, citing the example of another family slowly drifting away. Another house has been closed on the island lately. She was an old woman, the Kearney mother, and she went out to daughters. She had an only son in the house and he himself used to leave the island every winter. So picture our island home sinking. While outsiders, such as Robin Flower, continued to visit the island, Nihula Wan commented how this was not enough to sustain island life. The visitors could not imagine the reality of how the ageing population was struggling through the winters and simply couldn't survive on the Great Blasket. This is again a quote from Eileen Nihula Wan. Visitors coming in and going out of our house, talking and talking and they on their holidays and they at home having comfortable home and no worry during winter or summer would never believe the misfortune on this island. No school, nor comfort, no road to success, no fishing. While island life was clearly on borrowed time, it was actually around this time that three island writers were becoming internationally famous. These were Murish or Hulawan, who had published a book called Fiha Blina Foss, or 20 Years of Growing, Tomas O'Crihan, who I mentioned earlier, and then finally Peg, who dictated her autobiography, which was published in 1936. She was also increasingly regarded as one of Ireland's preeminent storytellers and folklorists. However, Peg herself, in spite of this, was increasingly tired of island life. By the 1940s, the situation was dire. The school had closed in 1941, and then finally in 1942. 
After 50 years on the Great Blasket, Peg Sayers joined the increasing numbers of islanders who were leaving when she returned to the mainland to live in Dunquin, where she had left back in 1892. Her health declined and she was diagnosed with cancer of the palate and the treatment for this saw her make her one and only trip outside her home county when she had to travel to Dublin. Meanwhile, the remaining islanders continued to plead for help. But they did not want the government to make island life more sustainable. They increasingly wanted the government to relocate them. They simply could not survive on this lonely island in the Atlantic Ocean. This was summarised best when the first reliable radio transmitter was installed on the Great Blasket. Previous ones frequently ran out of battery. However, one of the first signals received in the midst of a storm in April 1947 was very short and desperate, reading, Stormbound distress. Send food. Nothing to eat. That had actually followed on from the death of a 24-year-old Sean O'Carna from meningitis and he had been unable to receive the help from a doctor or a priest before he died. In 1952, the Great Blasket was actually cut off for a month and the remaining islanders had no food, only potatoes and salt. Finally and inevitably, in November 1953, the final evacuation of the island took place, bringing an end to permanent occupation of the Great Blasket. Peg Sayers herself lived out her days in St Elizabeth's Hospital in Dingle, finally dying in 1958 in her mid-80s, her exact date of birth unknown. When she died, she was already well-known and a highly respected woman. While I have focused on her as a historical source, Peg Sayers is today regarded as a great folklorist and an advocate of the Irish language in the 20th century, a stature reflected in the numerous books and articles written about her. This is an exceptional feat given she never wrote a single word down herself. While celebrated at the time of her death, Peg Sayers reputation plummeted in the following decades. Now this was through no fault of her own, but due to the fact that her 1936 autobiography Peg became a mandatory text for all Irish second level school students. However, Peg's original work was heavily edited to reflect what the Irish Free State considered an ideal Irish woman. This ended up portraying Peg as a dour, impoverished, miserable woman rather than the person who offered fascinating insights into a world that had by then more or less disappeared. The book in any case was not suitable for the purpose of teaching teenagers Irish as it was hoped. Instead, by the 1990s, an entire generation of Irish students had pretty awful associations with Peg. This was a grave injustice done to her. The Peg that I have tried to convey in this podcast was a really remarkable woman. I'm going to leave you with one of the most evocative lines from her autobiography as she reflected on the Blasket Island community. People like us will never again be there. We'll be stretched out quietly and the old world will have vanished. Until next time, Sloan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.